Amen. Amen. Why don't you have a seat and open up to Joshua 23. Joshua 23. How many of you know the name Alex Honnold? Anybody? A few folks. Some of you crazy rock climbers in the, in the group. Alex is a rock climbing expert and is known most widely for his 2017 achievement of free climbing, a 7,600-foot-tall vertical rock face known as El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. Now, if you don't know what free climbing is, it is climbing, I can't even say it, with no ropes and no safety equipment. In other words, it's insanity. <laughs> it's just your hands, your feet, some chalk, and a rock wall. Now, Alex has made a living out of doing what most every other human could not do. At 5'11 and about 160 pounds, Alex climbs sheer rock walls by clinging to them in a way very few others can. Now, at times, all that is holding him against the rock is a fingertip or two and the grip of his specialty rubber climbing shoes. Friends, this man knows what it is to cling to the rock. If he were to do this a foot off the ground, it would still be very impressive, would it not? But as you can see in this picture, he does this hundreds and thousands of feet off the ground where one misplaced hand or foot, one dislodged pebble means assured death. And he does this for fun. Now, as I talk about this, my palms are sweating, my heartbeat is elevated, the irony of God's grace to me is that at six foot ten, I am actually very phobic of heights. <laughs> I bring this picture to bear in your minds because I can't think of a better picture of what it means to cling onto something with your very life and your very soul. And to take the metaphor a bit further, we look at this picture realizing that tugging on his body the entire time is the unceasing force of gravity that desires to pull him down to destruction. And so until the ultimate summit is reached, there can be no hesitation, no relaxation in clinging to the rock. His entire life must be given to clinging to the rock. Now this, my friends, is an amazing parallel of the Christian life of sanctification as we await the face of our Savior and Lord. For in this walk, God calls us to cling to him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Sin lies close at hand, within and without, ready to overtake us, should we, even for a moment, dismiss its pull. And like gravity, sin's end, if we let it grip onto us, is destruction. And so we must give the entirety of our lives to this pursuit of reaching the summit of glory. And yet there is one massive difference between this physical picture and the spiritual picture of our covenant faithfulness to Christ. For the one climbing a mountain, reaching the summit is 100% dependent upon luck and the strength of the athlete. But for the Christian, reaching glory and avoiding the gripping claws of death is actually the result of God's providence, God's mercy, God's grace, God's power, and our entire dependence upon all of it. The effort we are to put in 
is a constant realization of our weakness, not our strength, and our need for God's empowerment in clinging to the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Now today, as we come to the last two chapters of Joshua, we will see Israel's leader proclaiming the same truth that this metaphor conveys. Joshua is coming to the close of his earthly journey, and as with Joseph and as with Moses, he will give a final epilogue and testimony that includes within it a call to Israel to cling on to Yahweh with all that they have. And this is a call that should resonate strongly with every Christ follower. Today, we will see the call to covenant faithfulness, and next week, we will see even in more detail the renewal of that covenant commitment. And so this morning, we will hear Joshua declare this to the leaders of Israel, cling to the Lord, your very life depends on it. Cling to the Lord, your life depends on it. Let's dig into our text and see what Joshua has to say. Would you read with me the first five verses of Joshua 23? A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribe those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Now, there are many ways we could break up this section of chapter 23 because it admittedly is not structured in a way that is as clear as other sections of Joshua. In one sense, we could see the section today, starting with the first five verses we've just looked at, as three separate calls to obedience that each have the same parts. They each have a reminder of God's faithfulness, a resulting call to obedience, and then third, a warning of what disobedience will lead to. But for our purposes this morning, we'll break the entire section of chapter 23 down into these three pieces, and you'll see this rotate through three different times. And so first, what we see Joshua calling Israel to is the idea that God's faithfulness is what has brought you to this place. He's calling them to realize that God's faithfulness is what has brought them to this place. And he could say the same thing to you and I. God's faithfulness is what has brought you to this place. Not this place physically, that is part of it, but this place as a whole in your life. The timing and placement of this text helps us to realize what Joshua is doing here. Most likely, this is a long time after they entered the land, possibly even a few decades later. If Joshua's age was anywhere near Caleb's, then the discussion of Caleb's age a few chapters earlier would make it possible that this could be even as far as 25 years after chapter 21, truly a long time afterward, as it says in the first verse. We also see that this is the end of Joshua's life. He's old and well-advanced in years, and this is repetitive from chapter 13 when it said the same thing. In other words, if you thought he was old then, he's really old now. He is assuredly at the end of his life. And so this is an epilogue or postscript of the book that takes the form of a last will and testament. And similar to Isaac and Joseph's speeches to their offspring and Moses' speech to Israel prior to crossing the Jordan, this is Joshua's final speech to his people. 
Joshua's calling the leaders of all the tribes to Shiloh to exhort them before he makes the exhortation to the whole nation at Shechem in chapter 24. And so that's one layer of what we see here. But a second layer is that it's also written in a style reminiscent of Deuteronomy. And here Joshua sounds like he's pulling from the last section of Deuteronomy, like Moses' speech before his, that covers blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. It's truly Joshua's final exhortation. The background of this text is given to us as well. It specifically states in verse 1 that they exist here in a time of relative peace. Specifically, a time, it says, of rest. Now, one might think, that sounds so great, doesn't it? A time of rest. We all need a little bit of that, right? But friends, we were created to rest in the Lord and the purpose of his life, of our lives that he has called us to. Not to rest in rest itself. That is an earthly mentality. Just as with you and with me, rest from warfare can be a confusing and even concerning thing. Because in rest from warfare, we often forget why we fight, what we're fighting for, and how to fight. In essence, in rest, God's people tend to forget the Lord and the fight he has called us to wage, unless we're resting only in him. Have you ever noticed that when life is hard or there are battles to fight, we stick super close to the Lord? You ever notice that? When life is not going well, it's, Lord, Lord, please, right? We grip onto him with everything we have. But when life is good, quote unquote, we may say grace here and there, but we largely fall into a state of entitlement and self-reliance. Interesting, I wonder what the Christian should actually ask for, the good life or the life reliance upon Christ, no matter what comes. How much more true was this for the people of Israel? They had largely conquered their enemies, they had been given land, and for years by this point, they had reaped the fruit of their labor. But Joshua knows that if he disappears as their political leader and the high priest, Eliezer, dies off as their religious leader, then the people will slowly but surely forget the Lord whom they have been relying upon their whole lives. And so, Joshua is calling the leaders to never forget the source of rest, Yahweh, himself. Sounds like there's cars about that direction. If your car is parked that way, you might want to go see if that's yours. Well, it is Yahweh who has proven faithful to everything that he has promised. For these leaders, hearing Joshua, they had conquered their enemies because the Lord had fought for them and conquered them. He had been the power behind their military juggernaut. For these leaders, that reap the benefits of the land, Joshua called them to remember that it was God who had given them their inheritance. It was God who brought the rain and the sunshine and provided the seed. It was God who allowed them to live in a land flowing with the provision of proverbial milk and honey. And lastly, not only had God proven true to his promises up to the current point, but he was so faithful that he would continue to fight on their behalf as long as they stayed true to their covenant commitment with him. You see, friends, Yahweh is inherently, innately faithful. He can do nothing else. His activity has proven faithful. He promised his people help and grace throughout the Torah, and he delivered on those promises in Joshua. And this is the foundation that they needed to remember to continue walking in obedience. And brothers and sisters, it is the foundation that we need to remember today to walk in obedience. 
For it's when we forget the Lord's faithfulness, or worse, when we dismiss his faithfulness, or even worse yet, when we deny or doubt his faithfulness, it is then that we loosen our grip on him and believe we are self-sustaining and self-reliant, and death is sure to follow. It is the result of forgetting our source and the one who has brought us to where we are today. Friend, do you really think that you have gotten to where you are in life because of your strength? Now, as a church, we have come out of a lot of change over the 12 years we've been in existence. A lot of theological change. We've come out of a couple years of COVID restrictions. We've come out of division in the church along political lines and much more. And we seem to be in a relative state of peace after much battle. But if we are not careful, we too can become restless and forget the Lord as the one who has brought us through it all. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to call you similarly to Joshua to make it a habit to remember. Make it a habit to remember. This is part of the Christian walk, is to remember On a daily basis, we need to each remember God's faithfulness in the Old Testament to his covenant people of Israel. These stories that we read are not myths or moral tales. They are proof of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. And we remember God's faithfulness in the Old Testament by reading it, not dismissing it. On a daily basis, not only do we need to remember the Old Testament and God's faithfulness in it, but we need to each remember God's faithfulness in the Gospels. The gospel is not a marketing pitch to pull you in for a one-time sinner's prayer. The gospel is your very lifeblood as a Christian. Amen? Amen. It is the air you breathe and the decision-making filter through which you lead your life. It is everything to you as a Christian. And we need to remind ourselves in the word and in prayer each morning that God is faithful. And we can see it in the gospels. We need to remember the evidence found in his plan of salvation accomplished through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. This is not just for Sundays. It is for every morning, every afternoon, every evening. It is the lifeblood of the Christian. We need to remember God's faithfulness in the gospel. On a daily basis, we need to each remember God's faithfulness to the new covenant church. And we do this through reading the powerful witness of the early church in spite of suffering and persecution in the midst of Acts and the epistles. And this faithfulness continued on in 2,000 years of the church and into our lives today. Friends, I want to encourage you. I know this is a, a big thing to ask, but become students of church history so you can see God's faithfulness for the last 2,000 years to his people. Do you think Mission Fellowship sprung out of nothing? No, 2,000 years of God's faithfulness to his church. This uh, spring, I will be teaching a Sunday seminar on a flyover of church history, which is a testimony to the ongoing faithfulness to God and to his people. If you've never looked at it before, that'd be a great place to start. And lastly, not only do we need to remember God's faithfulness in the Old Testament, in the gospel, to the New Testament church, but brothers and sisters, on a daily basis, we need to each remember God's faithfulness to this church and to each one of us. Twelve years ago, this body of believers did not exist Seven years ago, we were on a theological and ecclesiological trajectory that was unhealthy and would not have ended well. And yet the Lord has seen us through it all faithfully in spite of ourselves. And each one of us is a testimony of his faithfulness that we can rely upon as we give thanks each day for his grace and mercy in our lives. And to realistically look at our testimony is to realize that if God had removed his hand one centimeter further or for one second longer, 
each of us would be destroyed. Remember God's faithfulness in your life. How quickly we forget God's faithfulness. When relational conflict comes up in the church, how quickly we forget how faithful God has been through his people in our past. When we don't like something that the word says, how quickly we forget that the word has been our rock for all of our lives. Don't forget, remember. Remember God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what has brought you and me to this place. Friends, are you carving out time to remember God's faithfulness? In devotion, in prayer, in reading? If not, you are building a house of faith on the sand of your experiences or the sand of your Christian relationships, and it will not stand. You need the foundation of God's faithfulness to build your faith. Your faith is weak, but his faithfulness is strong. And this is why the psalmist, even this morning, exhorted us to constantly remember. From our reading this morning, it says this, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Friends, we need to remember. Remember the Lord's goodness and faithfulness. This is what Joshua was exhorting them to do, to remember God's faithfulness and to base their obedience off of that, not just out of sheer will. And this would then lead them to the next step, beginning in verse 6, with a very strong therefore. Because God, has been care- because God has been faithful, therefore, be careful to love the Lord your God. Therefore, be careful to love the Lord your God. Let's read Joshua 23, 6 through 11. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Joshua knew that the leaders of the people needed to lead and model these truths. And Joshua knew that where the leaders went, the people went and would follow. So he next powerfully exhorts them to be very strong and keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, not turning from the right or the left, and to be careful to love the Lord your God. And he uses the word cling, cling specifically, just like the metaphor in our introduction. They needed to cling to the Lord their God. Now first we notice a connector to chapter 1. One of the favorite passages uh, from the book of Joshua is Joshua 1.7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And so you might consider Joshua 1.7 and this verse in 23.6 as the bookends, if you will, on the rest of Joshua. All of Joshua, all of the conquest, all of the inheritance, all of the goodness, all of the faithfulness of God, it sits between the bookends of the truth of his word. Now you might consider this and think about this because this is powerful when you think about how it impacts our lives as well. But the call to strength here and the call to strength in Joshua 1.7 is more than just a simple call to be tough. Be tough Christians. Be strong. 
It's way more than that. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it's closely tied and connected to this word cling in verse 8. For the word strong in Hebrew, kazakh, infers an idea of seizing and conquering and cleaving. In other words, there is no clinging unless it's clinging in strength. Have you ever thought of somebody clinging to something weakly? No, you cling in strength. And then he also uses the word keep here, which in Hebrew is the word shamar, which means protecting and constantly being on watch. It's what a guard would use if you were guarding the gate of the city, shamar. Friends, this is battle language, to cling to God. It's not simply moralistic obedience. To cling to God is to constantly be on watch and at the ready. To cling to God is to cling to the word he has given because the enemy, the liar, wants to come and sow division between you and God's truth. And the idea is that if you do not cling on in strength to God with your hand on the hilt of the sword of his word, so to speak, you will be overtaken. You will be taken down. It is a promise of God's word. The imagery you can imagine is like that of David's mighty men. Uh, one of them is described in 2 Samuel 23.10, one of my favorites because he's named the son of Dodo. Just find that funny. But he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. The idea is, is at the end of the battle, his hand was so wrapped around the hilt of the sword that he had to pry his fingers off of it. Is that how you hold on to your Bible and the Word of God? Or is it sitting on a shelf gathering dust? That's what it means to cling to God and the sword of his word. So it makes sense that Joshua would next indicate how to be strong and cling to Yahweh. Rely on and practice what is found in the law of Moses. Know it. Study it. Memorize it. And never, ever deviate from its rule in your life. In Deuteronomy 6, the language of the great Shema was presented as the underpinning principle of all Israelite society and religious life. But here, the same language is being used as a statement of sheer survival. As if Joshua were saying, guys, you need oxygen, breathe. That's how he views the word, the law of Moses. Would you go back with me quickly to Deuteronomy 6? And we can look at it again now, the great Shema and the language around it that's being reused here. And we can see it with a little bit of a different perspective. There it was a, hey guys, this is what I'm telling you to do. Now Joshua's coming along and saying, hey, if you don't do this, it is death. And take a look at Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to just read through it. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment. Notice it's not a suggestion. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Now, you have to read really hard into those verses to think of this as passive or as a suggestion. Just notice how many times it says command, delegate, like law, rule, right? Statute, okay? Over and over again, it says these things because this is the lifeblood of God's covenant people, Okay? Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Hear, O Israel. Remember, in Hebrew, this is Shema, O Yisrael. That's why it's called the great Shema, the great hear, the great command. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Diligently. Parents, you shall teach them diligently. Do you teach your children diligently? To your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Guys, is this serious? Is this intense? Is this diligent? Does this sound like something, in order to actually do this, you'd need to devote your whole life to it? Yeah, now you're getting it. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, like we're seeing in Joshua, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, like we're seeing in Joshua 23, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Who would destroy you off the face of the earth if you mixed with the cultures around you? God. Not a mean pastor. Not a mean group of elders. Not a church that's too conservative. God himself will destroy you if you mix with the culture around you. Now, what does this mean? Because if you're anything like me, I'm like, I don't want that. Does anybody else not want that? I don't want that. Okay? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall, not, you, should, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Serious stuff, is it not? Now the author of Joshua, if you'll go back there with me, is here recalling the great Shema to reinforce that God meant what he said, and now it is truly survival. Friends, real quick, how many of you have ever flown on an airplane? Anyone? Raise your hands. Okay. Do you ever notice how few people pay attention to the placards or the videos on how to survive a crash if you are unlucky enough to be the people who are in a crash? Literally, every time I go on a plane, I just sit and watch and go, y'all going to die. Like, none of you know where the exits are. Me, I'm like, where's that exit? I want to, the first thing I want to know, I don't care what the drink is, I want to know where the exit is. Why? Because in the unlikely event of a crash, what do you need to know? Where the exit is. But people are ignoring it. They're not paying attention. The present-day church, friends, is like this. We are no different. Right in front of our very eyes is the very information we need to live. And yet we go about doing whatever we're doing, ignoring the wisdom right in front of us, banking on the idea that we will not crash and we'll somehow end up at our destination in the tropical lands of heaven just because. 
But friends, as our text today tells us, destruction is assured if you don't hold on tight to the word of God with a clinging strength like no other. So God, through Joshua, is calling the leaders of Israel to guide Israel and lead their lives with singular focus. Not to stray even a fraction to the left or the right, because as we know, a one-degree turn may not be that much now. But as you move forward 10, 20, 30 years, that degree of difference will result in a completely different destination, death, and separation from the Lord. For friends, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few because everyone deviates from their course. Every other direction but Jesus Christ and his explicit word will only lead to death. So what is it then? To stray to the right or left and away from the law of Moses? Well, verse 7 in chapter 23 of Joshua tells us that it would mean joining together and clinging to the world and the pagan nations rather than to Yahweh. It is to mix the ideas of God's word with the ideas of the world. Now, friends, this mixture is not a discussion of nationality or ethnicity. And when that was used that way in the history of the church, that was complete and utter sin. This is a discussion of worship and idolatry. And we know that the principle is still one we're to observe in the new covenant because Paul himself reiterates it. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The technical term for this mixture is called syncretism. Syncretism is the mixture or the amalgamation or the attempted mixture of different religions and cultures or schools of thought. It is when we mix what we think or guess is Christian with that which is not. And friends, if you think it is always super, super clear what is of God and what is not, just look at the syncretism of the Israelites when they had fashioned a golden calf. Aaron proclaimed that it, the golden calf, was that Egyptian idol and yet he said, this is Yahweh who has delivered you from Egypt. Look forward into the, the kings of Israel. And I guarantee you that the Asheroth idols, the Asheroth poles that showed up in the temple courts, it wasn't just one day, boom, there it is. It was a slow but sure, gosh, I don't know that the temple's relevant anymore. Maybe if we started to introduce things that, that the world really likes, maybe then they'd start to come to the temple more. Maybe then the Israelites would start to follow the law of God. In so doing, they were perverting the law of God. To be syncretistic is rarely, if ever, a conscious choice. It's the result of being asleep at the wheel of our faith and letting our own intellect and emotion determine truth rather than sticking to the word of God and what it says clearly and undeniably. Today, syncretism is even applauded because the church has a tendency that is on steep decline, people applaud syncretism because churches are purposefully becoming syncretistic to try and draw non-believers. Friends, is the church for non-believers? No, the church is for believers. And the only non-believers that come to the church are people that are going to be believers because they're being drawn by God. Now, this morning, I read an article on NPR about three pastors who believe church just doesn't work anymore, so they centering their gatherings around a communal garden, a coffee shop, and a yoga class. But the reason that so many churches are closing in the first place is because 
They're not churches at all. Because the point of the church is to preach the undeniable word of God. It's not to have yoga class and make you feel spiritual. It is not to build the community garden so people can be kind to each other. Now you might say, well, Hans, isn't that something Christians should do? Sure. Sure. Make a community garden and then preach the word of God for people to come. The reason that churches are closing is because they're not preaching the word of God. The job of the church is to be the unwavering herald of God's truth and of God's good news, regardless of whether it is dismissed or accepted. It's not to mix with the surrounding world to make its message palatable. That is what it is to be part of the true church, is to preach the word of God, not to make the word of God palatable to non-believers. And friends, to be a true Christian is to be one captured and called, elected and drawn and saved by Christ. We do not attain eternal life nor righteous standing in Christ by the worldview we hold or the beliefs we have in our head. But for the one who has been captured, called, elected, drawn, and saved by Christ, there will immediately be a new heart placed where your heart of sin and rebellion once was. And that heart, while not perfectly or immediately obedient, it will desire at its core to grow in obedience to Christ and to accept and be conformed to his reigning law. And so, while not the means of attaining salvation, it is the outright evidence of salvation that has already occurred when a Christian desires to conform their heart, their mind, their worldview, their politics, their ethics, and their wisdom to God's word. Not the other way around. And so we must each ask ourselves, have I submitted my life to God's law? Am I actively studying God's word to bring my worldview into submission to God's? When a Bible teacher says something that I disagree with, do I go home and study God's word to see if what is being said is true? Or do I immediately dismiss it because it doesn't fit into my mold of Christianity? If it's here at mission, do you seek out that teacher with your Bible open to discuss it? Or do you just become passive-aggressive and figure out a way to leave the church? On taboo subjects, have you sought out the whole counsel of Scripture on the topic? Or just accumulated voices and verses that prove your point of view? Friends, if the answer to any of these is no, then I want to suggest to you that God is calling you to cry out to him for the outpouring of his spirit on your heart and mind. Ask him to empower you so you might subject yourself to his word, his worldview, and his reign over your life. Because, friends, each of us, like the mountain climber clinging to the vertical rock face, if we do not cling to the rock of God's word with everything we have, the force of sin will draw us innately to our destruction. One of my greatest prayers for every single one of you that is a member at this church is, Lord, let them see sin clearly so that it does not pull them away from you. And this force is not just out there. It's present in the false Christians that attend church every Sunday, and it's present in the old man that lives still within each of our mortal bodies that are subject to the law of original sin. We must be at war with sin every moment of every day. Joshua was clear then, and it is still clear now, clinging to God and therefore clinging to his word that he has graciously given us is the only way. 
Now, a couple of comments on this before we move on to the final section, if I haven't already offended you enough. First, notice that clinging to God is a proactive word. Proactive. Often in evangelical Christianity, we think of strong Christians as those who simply defend against or avoid the world around them. But friends, clinging is not avoidance. Notice it says cling to God, not avoid the world. The life of God's people is found in clinging to him amidst and among the surrounding world, just as it was for Israel among the Canaanites. We must realize it is our job to equip one another and to equip our children to cling to God amidst the world, not hide from it. For when sin is presented, we must know how to choose Christ instead. And that spiritual muscle is not built by simple avoidance. Also, one might challenge that this imagery of clinging to the cliff is contradictory to the theology of salvation we teach at this church. We teach that God is the one who elects, God is the one who empowers, God is the one who saves and glorifies and justifies. Justification is his choice and his will, and it cannot be undone. Those who are his will endure in the faith until glory because God will be faithful to complete the work he has begun. That's what we teach here. So one might argue, it seems like the rock climbing picture leaves the chance of falling away. And that would be a valid point if the definition of cling had to do with our strength. But as we've already discussed, the cling here is not one of strength, but a realization of our weakness. See, friends, the problem with the Christian who walks in ongoing unrepentance and disobedience is never a matter of being too weak. It's that he or she is not weak enough. Or at least that they've not realized and admitted their weakness enough. For it's our belief in the lie that we can cling to Christ in our own power that hinders us from falling upon the cross of Christ in need. And when we do that, we truly cling to Christ as we need to. For Israel, they needed to remember that they were only in the position they were because of God's grace, God's grace in the Exodus, God's grace in the wilderness, God's grace in conquest, and God's grace in allotment of the land. Only God's grace would sustain them ongoing as they dwelt amongst and continued to conquer the remaining Canaanites. Friends, if you're convicted as you hear this this morning, man, I better get in the word. Here's what you usually do. You usually say that, and then you say, I got a white knuckle at this week. I'm going to try even harder. I'm going to set my alarm five minutes more. I'm going to get up. I'm going to do this in my strength. Does that ever work for you? It never works for me. Ever. I've been trying for 43 years. I'm just not going to eat that last Oreo. I swear it. Right? We do the same thing with God's word. But friends, when you switch tracks and you actually realize that it's not a matter of I just have to try harder, but if I don't read that, I will die, I guarantee you, you read it more. Amen. I mean, try not going, try going without water for a few days. See how badly you want water. It's got to be the same thing with God's word. When you admit your weakness, when I admit my weakness, God's word becomes our everything. And so, from God's perspective, it is true that he has us and we can relax in that fact, but from our perspective, part of his grace is the empowerment of our reliance upon him. And so we must constantly pray, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Humble me. Humble me when I am strong to show me that I am actually weak. 
Lord, make me see my need for you and break me of my self-reliance. That must be our prayer. And we need to do this daily because staying true to God and not mixing with the world is truly a matter of life and death. Friends, I've watched it over two decades of ministry. People start to grab onto worldly ideas and I go, oh no, there goes another one. And lo and behold, over time, they walk away from the faith. The phrase here in the English is, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. That's what it says here in Joshua 23. But in the Hebrew, the more wooden translation is, take care for your very souls, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Friends, it is a matter of life and death. Be careful to love the Lord, for your life does depend on it. And Joshua finishes his exhortation with this clear caution. Cling to God, he says, I will say cling to Christ or the world will cling to you. Cling to God or the world will cling to you. Let's read Joshua 23, 12 through 16. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and a thorn in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed." But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Syncretism, or mixture with things other than the Lord, will lead to a trap that will slowly but surely devour you. In verse 13, the words snare and trap have the connotations of a net and a noose. And because the Lord loves his people, when we mix with the world and give into idolatry, he allows the innate nature of that idolatry to overcome us and to break us. And so it truly becomes a torment. Our ungodly attitudes, our addictions, our lusts, our destructive methods of relating or coping with life, these become like thorns in our eyes and a whip on our sides. It is the severity of God that becomes his kindness in these moments. For Israel, God's promise of conquering and inheriting the land had been accomplished. They knew here that it was his power that had accomplished it. But the question now was, would they continue clinging to him or turn to the nations around them to align with them and their gods? Would they make peace as man defines it rather than peace as God defines it? As God's people, Israel was to hold the love of God above all else. We read that in the great Shema. They were to have the law of God as the reigning truth in their life. All else was to be run through its filter, not the other way around. But what secretism does is, like the thorns in the eyes, it blinds you to the fact that you are now running the love of God and submission of his word through the filter of the world's wisdom and the world's false gods. 
And this was the story of Israel. For just into the next book of Judges, Israel became a place where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and yet still claimed to be God's people and held God in contempt for not answering their prayers. A few books forward from that, as we said, we read, we read the constant story of Israel's idolatry, being, bringing pagan altars and statues into the very temple of Jerusalem, and yet they still claim to be God's people. I can hear it now. Temple worship, mm, it's just not enough today. Too traditional. Let's bring in the fertility idols. That'll resonate and make us relevant. God's people are a covenant people. They existed as a people by the covenant love and loyalty of Yahweh, and they were to respond in like manner. And it was imperative that the covenants that they made with other nations or within their own home between husband and wife reflected this covenant loyalty to God above all else. But Israel would not hold true to this covenant loyalty. They would intermarry with pagans who were not devoted to Yahweh, still true in the church. They would make alliances with pagan nations who worshipped other gods, and slowly but surely, it eroded the covenant love and loyalty that Israel had for Yahweh, which ultimately led to its discipline in exile. And we, unfortunately, are no different as the new covenant people of God. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he accomplished salvation for us and drew us into the new covenant that is signified by his blood. We remember and recommit in covenant loyalty to Christ through our taking of the sacrament of communion every Sunday. We have a singular focus on Christ and the covenant into which his blood-bought sacrifice has brought us. But we become syncretistic. And so we must ask ourselves every day, and especially as we gather as God's people, have I become syncretistic? Have I mixed with the world as Joshua cautioned? How do I know that? Well, friends, look at who you follow on social media. Or look at the fact that you're on social media at all, I would suggest these days. Can I just say, get off of it? It's a waste of time. Look at your views on dating and marriage. Are you okay marrying a person who says they're a Christian, but eh, they don't really show it all that much? Well, they say they're a Christian, so they must be. Hopefully, they'll get more holy as time goes on, because that works. Just ask any of the people in this room who married that person and are now coming to church alone. Look at who you surround yourself with at work and which work training and podcasts you listen to and start to run the, God's word through those as filters. Are you willing to join yourself to voices and personalities and people that are not wholly given over to Christ and covenant loyalty? If you are, like Joshua, I want to warn you out of love today that these voices will slowly but surely peel back your fingers from clinging on to Christ and his word. As I said, I've watched for two decades now as Christian after Christian begins to replace allegiance to Christ and his word with worldly viewpoints and opinions. And it always starts with slow but sure syncretistic statements that begin forming our worldview, and slowly but surely that Christian looks more like the world than the historic church. How do we know a syncretistic statement or opinion? Here's the list. And I'm sure there's many more, but I could, I could go on for hours on this, but I'll just do these. First, a syncretistic statement will diminish the authority of God's word and call into question its sufficiency. Secondly, it will attempt to strip Yahweh of a portion of his intrinsic character or role as God, life giver, king, judge, or savior. It will emphasize one part, but not the whole. 
It's super trendy to talk about the compassionate Jesus, but not the Jesus that will return as judge to judge you for your sin. Super trendy to talk about the New Testament Jesus, but not the Old Testament God. That's not just enough. It will slowly cast God the Savior as good, but God the judge as bad. Third, it will use the behavior of the church or so-called Christians throughout history to call into question the validity of God's word. Friends, just because the church sinned does not mean that the word of God is not true. Fourth, it will use secular and pagan morality to define good and evil rather than the holiness as defined by God's word. It will use phrases like tolerance, nice, kind, equal, prosperous, and so on. These will be the new defining filters for good and evil, not God's word. Next, it will give authority into the hands and voices of people who are blatantly against Christ and his word. In other words, it will align with those that are enemies of the cross. It will misuse small pieces of scripture taken out of literary, historical, cultural, and biblical context to call into question more blatant and obvious commands. This is used most often in a misuse of Levitical law to counteract moral law. It will call into question historically orthodox beliefs that have been in place for the vast majority of the church age and replace them with something that we know more about now. And notice all of these put the filter of truth and control in the hands of the singular individual calling into question God's word rather than existing in the reality that God's word is absolute and has outlasted and will outlast every human who has ever lived, save Christ, who is the very word incarnate. Friends, all of us must ask ourselves if the word of God is our lawgiver or are we figuring out ways to conform the word of God to a common pagan worldview? Are we falling into these same syncretistic traps that Joshua warned the people of Israel against? Entire denominations are splitting because so-called Christians are trying to conform God's word to the world's viewpoint so that it is no longer offensive or so that they can fit someone they love into the mold of heaven. This is rampant in the church today. 400 Methodist churches in Texas just broke off of their Methodist denomination this month because they want to stand on God's word and say that any sexuality out of biblically defined sexuality is sin. But they are in the minority and so are we. Because the church is becoming and has become syncretistic. So are we falling into these same traps? Friends, God's word will always be offensive to anyone who does not bow the knee to Christ and his rule. James put it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, our job is not to hide from the world nor to embrace the world, but to be God's people submitted to God's law amongst the world. This is what Israel was supposed to do. This is what Joshua was calling them to do, and this is our job as well. And this is so that we might declare and proclaim with one voice the good news that Christ has saved us from our sin of rebellion and empowered us to submit to him and obey his rule as Lord. And it is also to proclaim that judgment is coming for any and all who do not turn to him as Savior and King. 
and a future of eternal torment is their destination. To do so well, we as the church must be people who know God's law, live by its truths, and proclaim its truths with our voices. This is why we preach God's word every week. This is why we have small groups that discuss the word we have preached, so we can conform ourselves to his word. This is why we provide Sunday seminars that inform our view of the world on topics like parenting, sexuality, and ethics. Are you engaging in these avenues of equipping, or are you assuming that you are just automatically submitted to Christ? Friends, we must, we must, we must cling to Christ and his word, or the world will cling to us, and eventually prove that our hearts were never Christ's in the first place. Some of us talk about studying God's word as if it would be a nice thing, but not a necessity, as if we are already healthy, but eating a few more fruits and vegetables would make us healthier. No, friends, the word of God is life-saving medicine for all we who are diseased and dying. If we are not conforming to it, the world will conform us to its use, and it will end in eternal death. And if this happens, it is God's loving discipline to give you over to yourself so that you might be broken of your rebellion and instead turn to Christ in humility. If you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to warn you that you are already trapped in the noose of the world's lies. And Christ is calling you out today to come to him in the wisdom of his word so that you might be saved. For all that awaits you if you, continue un, if you continue aligned with the world and its way of thinking is assured destruction and eternal damnation. But the good news of the Bible is that Christ died in your place. He took on your sin of rebellion and resurrected in victory so that doesn't have to be your eternal end. Cling to him today. Turn to, turn to him, excuse me, in humility this morning. In Mission Fellowship, God has been faithful to us, amen? Christians, God has been faithful to you individually, amen? His faithfulness is what has brought us individually and as a church to where we are today. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the law of Christ, the word of God, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations and these peoples remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Mission Fellowship, cling to Christ. Cling to his word, for your very life depends on it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, a truer call could not be present in our day and age. Lord, not just because of the politics of today. The politics have been around forever. Not just because of the fight against the cross. The fight against the cross has been around forever. Our day is no different, but Lord, the one thing that is different is that we are here and have control of this moment as to whether or not we cling to you or let go of you. And so, Lord, I pray for every Christian in this room Impress upon them the importance of what Joshua spoke to the Israelites and is therefore speaking to us through the filter of the cross. Lord, impress upon us this week, even today, that your word is life-giving water and we are thirsty. Lord, increase our thirst. Humble us before your word so that we might desire it each and every day 
Help us to desire the gospel every morning. Help us to desire a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude that we might remember everything that you have done in faithfulness for your people and for each of us individually. You are a good and faithful God, and you have proven it time and time again. Father, forgive us for dismissing that faithfulness or calling it into question because of our experience. Lord, you are good and faithful. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would help this church and the people within it to be conformed to your word. You would help those who are not yours to be called to the cross, that they might see what you've done for them, that you, they might see that you've resurrected in victory and you sit as king. Lord, call them to submit themselves to you. And Lord, as we step into communion now, we pray, God, that you would let the weightiness of this call to cling to you sit on our hearts so that we might understand and enjoy the true nature of communion, the reminder of your blood-bought sacrifice that you have made us your own. Thank you, Lord, for this word this morning. Thank you that in this season of Advent, you can call us to the source and the center of what we are supposedly celebrating this Christmas, which is you. Let everything else, the enjoyment of family, the enjoyment of gifts and food and everything else, flow from that and help us to raise you up as our king. We thank you and we praise you and we give the rest of the time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.